Well, church, today truly is a good Friday. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And as we started Palm Sunday, last Sunday, we're talking about the King who offers us peace. Now we speak about the Lamb that was offered as a sacrifice now for our sins. We have gone from Palm Sunday to the Garden of Gethsemane and from Gethsemane now into Golgotha. And what an exciting time it is going to be in God's Word this evening. I'm going to invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, chapter 52, with a message today titled, The Sacrifice. The Sacrifice. And as we've gone from Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed and he cries out to the Father, and he says, not my will, but your will be done. Now we are at Golgotha and at Calvary studying what took place at the cross. And it's very important that we study this because the purpose and the calling of Jesus was fulfilled at that cross on Good Friday. And that's exactly why we can go from the trial to the triumph or from the tragedy to now the victory. And maybe today we're living in a time of trial. But because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we can go from the trial to the triumph, from the tragedy that is around us and surrounding us to the victory of the presence of God, because this is the Lord perfectly fulfilling the will of God at the cross. Just like he said it, my will, not my will, but your will be done. In fact, it was in John chapter 6, verse 38, that Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And that was the entire purpose and calling and desire of Jesus, not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him. In John chapter 8, verse 29, he says this, And he who sent me is with me, the Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. Now think about that prayer, that statement, that confidence, the conviction of Jesus. Where He says, the Father is always with me, He has never left me, because I always do the things that please Him, because I've been sent to do the will of Him who sent me. His entire focus was to get to the cross, to fulfill, to accomplish, and to satisfy now to pay the price of our sins that we could never pay. And we're going to see that take place at the cross. We're going to see that now even be prophesied in the Old Testament through the prophet Isaiah. Before we even get there, I want you to know that the cross was so important as we've already even embraced the cross in our lives as believers. In fact, it was A.W. Tozer that said this, in every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the, in the throne till he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. We all want to be saved, but we insist on Christ doing all the dying. Do you see that today, this Good Friday, I pray that not only we would come and embrace the cross, but that we would say, Lord, here is the throne of my life. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I choose to follow you. I want to carry the cross as well. Because there's a difference between looking at the cross. There's a difference between remembering the cross and then finally carrying the cross. 
And that's exactly why we've come tonight, because we want to carry the cross. And today we say, Lord, we want to carry the cross. We appreciate you. We recognize you as the king. And we know that you were the perfect lamb. You see, it was during this week that the Jewish people were celebrating redemption through the Passover. It was the Passover, the Jewish celebration, where they remembered that judgment was going to go through Egypt to those whose houses did not have the blood of the lamb. And judgment had to come. Judgment had to come because God now, His holiness demands that He judges sin and that price is costly. That's why the cross was necessary. Because God is holy. And because God is holy, He must judge sin. So therefore, He told them that during this time, they would now take a lamb and sacrifice that lamb and put the blood on the doorpost, on every side of the doorpost as a covering now for that home, as a protection now for that home, so that the angel of the Lord would pass over now and they would just receive the protection because of the blood of the lamb. That was the celebration of the Passover. And understand this, when the Jewish people celebrated the Passover, the Passover celebration, uh, or the neglect of it, was a thermostat now, or a thermometer, so to speak, indicating now the community's spiritual condition. And think about observing now the cross, observing the blood of the Lamb. We're going to observe it tonight as we take communing of the cup and of the bread. And when the Jewish people or the nation of Israel years after, if they did not celebrate or institute now the Passover meal and the unleavened bread, and they did not do these things, it was indicative now of their spiritual condition. If they neglected now this tradition and this history now, we know that that night, that very first Passover night was a night, a long night, a night of vigilance, a night that was mixed with hope, a night that was mixed with now feelings now of expectation for those that were obedient. The Passover night, the first Passover night. In fact, the word Passover in the Hebrew word means now or is pronounced Pesach or Pesh now, Passover. And what it really means, it means to spread wings over to protect. To spread wings over to protect. The Passover. In fact, that is the same word where we get the word of sheltering or protection as found under the outstretched wings of the Almighty God. Passover. Resting under the wings of the Almighty God. In Isaiah chapter 31 verse 5, he speaks using the same word Passover. He says, like birds flying about, so the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem, defending, he will also deliver it, passing over it, he will preserve it. Do you see how the Passover, this, this concept of the Lord stretching in his wings out for preservation and for protection is so important for us? Because not only did he pass over by the houses of the nation of Israel, they had the blood, he also stood at the door there. As a protection now, as a now preservation around the blood sprinkled doors now protecting that home. And today I really pray that we can come now into the place where we say, Lord, 
We want your blood on the doorpost of our hearts. Lord, we need your blood to cover our hearts and to our minds. Lord, we want to be covered by the blood of the Lamb, Lord. We understand that the only protection is when we stay in that house and there is blood on the doorpost. You see, there is a lot of fear around us in the world today. But the most fearful thing that we can possibly living, be living through is to be living without the covering of the blood of the Lamb. And the only way we know that we're covered by the blood of the Lamb is that we stay in that house. And that we know, Lord, we are under your protection. We are in it fellowship with you. Because this is what it meant to be in fellowship, to understand redemption, to understand that God was redeeming his people out of bondage, just like he's redeemed us out of the bondage of sin with his precious blood. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, uh, Peter refers to the blood of Christ as the precious blood of Christ that was spilled on the cross. That he went before the cross so that me and you can go behind the veil. And the veil was split into two and now we can go behind the veil and fellowship with the Lord and experience fellowship with him. Because this is the entire message of love. The entire message of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, now in Isaiah, as we go here, chapter 52, we know that Isaiah is speaking about a redemption that's going to take place from the nation of Israel, and he's speaking prophetically. And as he's speaking prophetically about this time that they would be redeemed from bondage, he then speaks about the spiritual redeemer of the nation of Israel that would arise now, Speaking about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Now what's interesting about this is that 700 years before he was born, before Jesus was born, 700 years before that, his death was foretold. <laughs> Do you see how prophecy is so amazing and it tells us the truth about Christ? That 700 years before now Jesus was born, his death was foretold. Now what do we pray right now? As we go into Isaiah chapter 52. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, God, because you have allowed us to come to this portion of Scripture. And we ask, Lord, that you would teach us what it was, Lord, for you to go through that cross, through that suffering for us. That we would learn what that means. Lord, we thank you, Lord, because you are our substitution. Because you took, Lord, the place of judgment, the place of wrath for our sins so that we, Lord, can li live a life of freedom from bondage. And we pray this all, Lord, in Jesus' name. And together we would say, Amen. We are in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. And Isaiah 52 in, verse, in, in, in chapter also 53 speaks not only about the humiliation of Christ at the cross, but also the exaltation of what took place after the cross. He speaks about the now suffering, but it also speaks about the glory. And when we look at the cross, not only we look at death that took place, but we also look about the victory that took place right after. See, it, Charles Spurgeon said this about chapter 52 and 53 now of Isaiah. He said, this is the Bible now, miniature and the gospel in essence. Because you can get the entire gospel in this chapter, chapter 
53, some have said Isaiah 53 looks as if it was written beneath the cross of Golgotha. <laughs> Just imagine. It looks like the prophet Isaiah was sitting under Golgotha and penning and writing these prophecies because he describes the suffering, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the glory of Jesus in his substitutionary death for you and for me. Now, I want you to notice this. Throughout this entire chapter, it speaks about Jesus becoming a substitute now for us. That he took our place, that he took our grief, that he took our sins, that he took the place of judgment for us, and he paid atonement now for our sins. He paid the price for our sins. The innocent Son of God took our place of guilty sinners and He paid the price for our sins. Let's read 52, verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. Now Isaiah is now prophesying here, and this is the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah, speaking about His servant. This is the Lord's suffering servant. Write that in your Bible. The Lord's suffering servant. You know what this means, the Lord's suffering servant? This, what this means is that he's speaking about the Messiah to come. And it says here, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. The Lord was providing now, God was providing a servant for us. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high just here. Extolled and be very high just as many were astonished at you. And his vis visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. It goes on in verse 15 and says this, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what he has not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not been heard, they shall consider. And he speaks about this in these very three verses of chapter 52, because he's describing, he's introducing now the servant. See my suffering servant. He will prosper. He will also be victorious. He will be exalted now as he speaks of him in verse 13. My suffering servant will be exalted now. Now he gives us here a reason to look towards hope. Notice he's going to talk about the suffering of our Messiah. The prophecy is going to speak now in detail about what Jesus did on the cross for us. What he took on our behalf. But before he goes there, he says in verse 13 that he was going to be exalted or that he would come out victorious, that he would prosper now after this suffering. There was an assurance here that at the end there would be glory now. Do you see that? That he would receive recognition, recognition as a king. But before that recognition, before the glory, there was going to be suffering. The ministry of Jesus, the ministry of the Lamb, the ministry of the Messiah was needed. He's first telling us, there's going to be victory before I explain the suffering. Why is this important? Is that we would understand that he's speaking about Jesus and that when we read this portion, we don't miss out on Jesus. You see, this is an introduction for us that we should never miss out on Jesus. There are many times that we can read passages like this and miss out on the importance of what Christ did on the cross for us. What is it that Jesus took on the cross for us? Verse 14, it says, Just as many were astonished at you, 
so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. You see, in verse 14, he starts to describe the physical appearance of Jesus. And he says, he talks about an astonishment of when others looked at Jesus. He says this now, that many were astonished at his appearance because he did not look like a form of a man because of how badly he was suffering. Now, the beatings now and everything that he went through when he went to the cross. The Bible tells us that he went through scourging through the Gospels. That he went in this flag room that the Roman soldiers took him to the now fortress Antonium of the Roman government and Pilate's court. And they, they whipped him now and they beat him and they blindfolded him now. And in fact, it says in Luke chapter 22, it says, Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who's the one who struck you? See, he's saying here his face was so disfigured that he hardly seemed human. Now, have you ever seen something or can you imagine now the impact of the suffering that Jesus had to go through? It says that scarcely would someone recognize him as if he was a man because of the terrific now suffering that he underwent during that time. And in verse 15, it says, So he shall sprinkle many nations, or he will startle, or he will cause amazement now to many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths. People will be silent now, recognizing and realizing the work of what Jesus did. For what had not been told to them, they shall see. And what had not been heard, they shall consider now. Those that did not know of Jesus, they will realize this after. That he was the king, that he is the king, that he is the Messiah. And kings will stand speechless at the presence of God. They will have nothing to say. Because Jesus with his great glory, with that great glory that he has, and with that work that he does, he will stop every now speech of people that would speak against him. And those that have never been told, or those that never have heard now will see, and they will understand what Jesus did. This is the introduction. As he's introducing now the suffering servant. I love it because he speaks about Jesus as his servant, the Lord, God, the Father. And in verse 1 of chapter 53, he goes on. And let's listen to what he's saying because he's going to describe now the suffering or what took place when Jesus came. And he speaks about the ministry of Christ here in verse 1 where he says this. Who has believed our report? Who is the one that has received the message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord have been revealed? Has anyone seen or received this revelation of Jesus? Who has received our report in verse 1? He starts to speak about. And he's going to give an introduction that the Messiah will suffer. And with suffering, great power of God would be displayed on him. The great power of God would be displayed. But most would reject and would not welcome him. You see, this is prophetic. Speaking about what would take place when Jesus would come and the ministry that would unfold. He's saying, who will actually receive the message? Because here Isaiah was prophesying that many would reject the Messiah. And they would reject them because of the way that he would come. He says, who has believed? Who has received this message? Has anyone re uh, received it? Because many would reject him. And he would hear him and reject him. Verse 2, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. 
He has no form or comeliness. And where we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Why is it that many would reject Jesus? Here it tells us in verse 2. Many would reject Jesus because of the form in which he came. You see, he describes Christ as a root. He shall grow before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Why is it out of dry ground describing Galilee? That Jesus would come out out of a small town, that, that he would bring now, the Lord would bring something beautiful even out of the most dry places. Notice that. But it speaks about here the humble rise, the humble rise of Jesus, that he would rise in lowly conditions, very humble conditions, that Jesus would not wear any royal robes or attire or emblems now, but he would be making his true identity visible to those that had eyes of faith to receive him. It wouldn't be no splendor. It would be no beauty that would attract us to him. In fact, he goes on and he says that here. He had no form of calliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing that was so attractive to him as the Messiah that the Jews were expecting. Now, when you think about a king of the Jews, you expect someone with royal emblems that come from a royal palace, but that's not how the Messiah would come. And that's exactly why in verse 2 he says there's going to be many that are going to reject him because it's not going to look like something attractive as when you look at a king. He would come from a dry place, from a lowly state. He would grow up. He would be, rise that way. You know how interesting it is that sometimes we try to make the gospel so appealing and so attractive through the presentation now of this modern mind. <laughs> and what we try to do is we try to dress up the gospel in our own method, in our own approach, but we have to stop trying to make it look attractive. <laughs> because the gospel is simple now. We have to stop trying to make it a, a certain way. The New Living Translation says this, My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing to attract us to him. You see the simplicity of the Messiah, how he would come? Alan Redpath says this, The only one that can make Jesus attractive or can make him attractive is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> well, isn't that amazing? The only one that can make him attractive is the Holy Spirit. Now, why is this so important for us? Because Jesus came in such a humble and such a lowly form for one thing. For one thing, to die on the cross. And notice in verse 3 it says, He was despised. This is why. He was despised. They did not receive Him. Verse 3, He is despised and rejected by men. Notice despised and rejected are past tense words. But the prophet is foreseeing the hatred the prophet Isaiah is foreseeing the rejection towards the servant Messiah. This is the servant Messiah. What does it say? He was despised. He was rejected by men. Here, a man of sorrows. Why was he a man of sorrows? Because he took our sorrows to the cross. Because he took our pain to the cross. Because he took our fear to the cross. Because he took the darkest moments of our lives to the cross. You see how it speaks about this? The, the, the man, the Messiah that it speaks about in verse 3, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was familiar with grief. Acquainted with grief. And we notice here, it says here, 
and we hid as if it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. We despised him. We, we looked at him very lowly. There was a, a lack of respect for the incarnate Son of God. It says, in fact, in verse 3, that we hid our faces, that we turned our back on Jesus, and we looked the other way. We despised him. We did not care. We held him in low esteem. We did not give him our heart, and we did not give him our attention. Now he's speaking about those that would reject Jesus, that never gave him their hearts, and that never gave them their attention. They despised them. They rejected him. They turned their back on Jesus. And it says verse 4 now, and from verse 4 on, it speaks about the work of what Jesus did, the servant Messiah on the cross. Now we have to appreciate these verses because these are the very verses of the work of the cross. Now I want you to write that down in your Bible, the work of the cross. From verse 4 and on it speaks of the work of the cross, a servant who bore our sins, a servant who bears our sins. You know why he bears our sins? I love it that he bears our sins because we can't bear our own sins. In fact, if we try to bear our own sins, they, they take us to hell. But it's so amazing that he bore our sins and he took them to the cross on our behalf. So now that we have a right standing with the Father, it says here, here in verse 4, Surely, and, and notice this in your Bible, He has borne our griefs. What did the Lord do? Born means He carried. And today in this season, maybe you have a season of grief, of fear, of weakness now. And here the word born means He carried. Notice what He carries for us in verse 4. Surely He carries our weakness. <laughs> I don't know about you, but... There is a season taking place right now where we are going through some weaknesses maybe. And the cross is a point and a place where Jesus carried our weakness. He bore our griefs or our sorrows, here it says. And He carried our sorrows. There are two things that Jesus carried. He bore now your griefs and He carried your sorrows. What are the sorrows? Your sickness. It was the Messiah that carried your sins and he carried your sickness now. It was the Messiah now that would bear the consequences of us that needed a Savior. He carried our sorrows. He carried now also there were sorrows. He carried our pain. You see, it's so amazing that today we can have comfort in the cross. This is amazing that we don't have to carry our pain because He's carrying it for us at the cross. We don't have to carry our sorrow because He already made the choice to say, I'm going to be the substitutionary Christ and servant that will carry that pain, carry that burden, carry that sorrow for you to the cross. And it says this, Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We thought that He was being punished by God at the cross. We consider that he was struck down by God at the cross. But the truth of the matter was, verse 5, this is what he was doing. But he was wounded for our. I want you to circle the word our in your Bible if you're taking notes right now. He was wounded now, or he was now beaten, or he was crushed now for our now transgressions. And this all speaks and is filled now, these verses, 
with the language of substitution. He took our, he took mine, he bore our sins. These are all things that we could not have done ourselves. These are all things that we could not have paid a price for ourselves. It had to be a perfect lamb to be that sacrifice for sins. And Jesus was the perfect lamb. Even in our best efforts, we couldn't have done this. Even in our, in, our, in our best days, the best version of who we are, it still would have never been enough. It had to be a perfect lamb that the nation of Israel took on Passover and, and, and they, they spilled that blood and covered it on that, on that doorpost. It had to be a perfect lamb. So the father had to send a perfect lamb. And that was his son, Jesus. And it tells us in verse 5 that he took the, now the sins and the wrath and the punishment for us Verse 5, for our transgression. And he was bruised for our iniquities. Now transgression and iniquity speaks now not only of our rebellion now, but also of our sin. He took our guilt now. And he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. Look what it says. He was doing that for our sins. It was not his sin. In fact, he was standing in the way, in the middle of the Father, in our rebellion. And he says, I'll take the wrath of their rebellion. I'll take the wrath of their transgression. Transgression means willingly or knowingly now sinning the perfect standard of God in His holiness. Violating that perfect standard. Now it tells us here in verse 5, the chastisement of our peace now, or the pain that was caused on him, Produce peace on our behalf. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. Now I love this verse because it teaches me, it reminds me that the chastisement of my peace is not upon me. The chastisement, the punishment for my peace was upon Jesus now. And it gives us a sense of appreciation to run to the cross and it says here now was upon him and by his stripes we are healed do you notice that the word stripes is not just any kind of stripes but it's a blow that cuts in deep it was the stripes now that cut in deep now because of those we are healed what is it that first peter chapter 2 verse 24 says who himself bore our sins in his own body. He was bearing our sins in his body. On that tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by those stripes, we are healed. You see, we find healing at the cross, a, a now spiritual healing that's the number one healing that we need. A lot of us talk about healing today. We want to find out what is it, the answer to healing now. There is a sickness taking place and is destroying people globally. Well, the first pandemic that ever took place, its name was sin. And the only one that can fulfill now a cure for that was Christ. The healing took place in verse 5 when he bore our sins. Do you see how important this is? This is God's ultimate healing you know what God's ultimate healing is called? Resurrection. God's ultimate healing is called resurrection because there's a glorious promise here to every believer, to you and to me. That every patch, every scar, everything in our past, 
he is able to heal spiritually. And I pray on this Good Friday that you would receive healing. Because maybe you're holding on to a pain that you shouldn't be holding on to because Christ already went to the cross for that pain. And he wants to provide you that spiritual healing now. I love the cross. Because it reminds us that I cannot live my new life the old way. That I cannot blame my spiritual walk today on my past pain. I have to leave that behind. And he says that he took it and he's providing now healing. Now, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Notice that. Like sheep, what have we done? What does sheep do? We go astray unknowingly, naively, naively and ignorantly with a rebellion. It says, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. We've backslidden. We've turned our own way. Everyone has gone to his own way. Look, notice that it says all, circle the world all. Because not just some all. A lot of people say, well, I've never turned away from the Lord. All of us have turned away from the Lord. All of us have fallen short from the standard of perfection. That means that if all of us have fallen, then all of us also need the servant Messiah. That means that all of us are in need for the same thing, for the Lamb of God. Just like we are in need of a king, we're also in need of this lamb. The perfect lamb of God. And it tells us this, we have turned everyone, all and everyone. <laughs> Notice on Good Friday, all and everyone need the same thing. All and everyone need Jesus. And maybe right now you're listening to this message with your loved ones. With someone that is already a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, I want you to know that the Bible says that all and everyone needed the lamb. That means you as well. And it says in verse 6, it says, We all have turned aside to his own way instead of God's way. Either can you choose your own way or God's way. And it says here now, The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Because of that, the Lord laid upon him, the servant Messiah, the iniquity, the wrath, and the sin of us all. He placed that for Jesus to pay on the cross, pay the price on the cross for us. In fact, God the Father treated him, the Son, as if he committed every sin of those who would believe in him. Because that's what was needed for Jesus to say, I pay the price for everyone's sins who put their trust and their faith in me. Do you notice how he had to pay the full price? He, had to, he didn't pay only half of the price. He didn't get a, a discount on the, on the price that he had to pay. There's only one price that had to be paid, and it was death. It was a life for a life. The life of the lamb or the life of those in the house. And Jesus said, I'm going to give my life so that they don't have to give theirs. He was paying the, pray, the price for sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says this, all, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All and everyone. All have left God's path to follow our own path. However, the Lord has laid upon His Son our sins and our iniquities. Notice in verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. This is the innocent lamb. This is the lamb that didn't open his mouth, that didn't object, that didn't protest. He was submissive in suffering. When was the last time we were suffering? We didn't open our mouths to complain. Well, that's not what Jesus did. This speaks of a willingness. This speaks of a submission now. 
This speaks of a surrender now that took place at, at Gethsemane that was taking place at Golgotha as well. And it says here in verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Verse 7, he didn't defend himself because he was in the will of God. I love it that when we're in the will of God, even if we're suffering, we don't try to defend ourselves. That's what happens when you carry the cross. You let the Lord do the defending. Because you'd rather be in His will than anywhere else. And the Lord was in the will now of the Father. It says, He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shears is silent. You know, little lamb, when he goes with its, its master, its owner, the shepherd, and he follows the, the shepherd wherever he goes. They, they don't know. They have so much confidence and so much trust in the shepherd. They don't question when they're going to the slaughter. They don't try to rebuttal. They don't try to kick back. They don't try to pull away from the slaughterhouse. They, they have no idea. They willingly just walk into the slaughterhouse, not knowing that their life is going to be taken from them. Now, just like that, Jesus went to the slaughterhouse willingly. However, he understood what was going to take place. But he did it voluntarily. Do you see how he's taking that position for you and for me? He took your sin, the darkest moments, the, the most wicked moments of our sins. He took them and it says, he opened not his mouth. Verse 8, he was taken from prison or from the criminals, from a place of criminals. He was taken and, and counted as a criminal now. And from judgment, who will declare his generation? Who is it that's going to defend him now? Who defended him? No one defended him. And he was cut off, it says here now, verse 8, he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken now. What does the word stricken mean here in verse 8? He was struck down for the rebellion of people. He was struck down for a global rebellion, a rebellion against the holiness of God. In verse 9, he says, and they made him they made his grave with the wicked. They intended for Jesus to not only die with the criminals, but also they wanted to bury him with the criminals. Do you see how awesome the Lord is, the Father is, and his master plan? He died with the wicked, but he was buried with the wealthy. The Bible tells us that Joseph of Arimathea went and asked for the body of Jesus to Pontius Pilate. And he took him, this rich man, into his newly now purchased tomb, now his gravesite. They had never been used. It tells us here in verse 9, they made the, his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence. Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. What, what does this speak about? That the treatment that he underwent was the treatment that he went as an innocent Savior. It was done as an undeserved treatment towards him innocent and undeserved he went and yet he never deceived anyone he never was given to violence the messiah never sinned he remained holy despite all the pain and all the suffering well isn't this an encouragement to us even as we're going through suffering right now to remain at the cross and maybe this Good Friday, you're learning that through suffering, it is our responsibility to stay at the cross. Because you can do one of two things with the cross. You can flee from the cross, or you can embrace it and die on it. And that's what it's called, we're called to do as disciples. 
To not flee from the cross, but to embrace the cross. Notice what it says here in verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The father was pleased to be able to see that this was taking place. What does this tell us? That this was the father's doing. It was the father that was doing this. It was the father using the son's life as an offering for sin. Notice that. And it says here, he put him to grief or he let him go before now our griefs to carry our griefs. And when you make his soul an offering for sin, underline that in your Bible church, an offering for sin. It was the only offering that can be there for our sin. Jesus was offered for our sin. And it says this as he speaks about Christ, that the father was doing this to the son. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Now, what does this mean? That as he was an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. What does this mean to see an inheritance, a generation, a children, a sons and daughters? That he shall see them. How will he see them? How will the suffering Messiah see them when he was taken to suffering, to die? He will see them as this is a promise to the resurrection. He will see many descendants, many sons, and many daughters enjoying this long life now because of the resurrection, because of the suffering. You see, it was now, and it tells us here, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It was God's good will. But this would take place through Jesus. And the father was not pleased so much in the son's suffering. It wasn't that that pleased the father, but it was the sacrifice that accomplished now the eternal plan of salvation for us as sinners that pleased the father. You see, when the father looked down at the son and he saw him on the cross paying the price for our sin, the accomplished work taking place, he was pleased in that. He was pleased in that. In verse 11, it tells us of this plan. Verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul. He shall see the accomplishment of his soul. He shall see that which he accomplished through anguish. He shall see the complete sanctification here of his soul and be sanctified here or be satisfied. He shall see now his soul and be satisfied. He will not regret when he looks back now and sees salvation now regret the cross, the Messiah. And it says here now in verse 11, by his knowledge now, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. By his knowledge, his servant will justify many. Because of the cross, the Son Jesus justified many. By his knowledge. What is the knowledge now? The knowledge in the, in, in the faith of the work of Christ and the person of Christ, my servant or my righteous servant, my perfect and my holy servant, here the prophet speaking on behalf of the Father, will justify. Justice was accomplished for me and for you at the cross. He will justify many as he bears their sins. Isn't this amazing? Verse 11, as it speaks about Jesus giving us justice at the cross before the Father, that we are considered 
now righteous, that he shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. How does he justify us? By bearing our iniquities, he will make it possible for many to be counted righteous because he took their sin. And notice that it says now many and not all because some would not be willing to receive now the price paid for their sins by the Lamb of God. It is in knowing the Messiah, it is in understanding what the Messiah did that we are considered and putting our faith in Him that we're considered righteous. Putting or trusting Him in Romans chapter 5 verse 19 it says, For as by one's man disobedience, many were made sinners. Because one man Adam sinned, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. Will you let Him be the substitute for your sins to pay the price for your sins? Will you put your faith and your trust in Jesus? Because it was one man, Adam, at the Garden of Eden that because of his disobedience, we all have been made sinners. But through one man's obedience, Christ, we all now have been made righteous. Let's go ahead and finish in verse 12. As the worship team comes forward, it says this, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. The Lord, the Father here, will give him a spiritual victory. And it speaks of the totality of Jesus and the sacrifice now on the cross. It says that he would be poured out. It means that, that his soul would be completely poured out now on, on, on now the cross. Therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the gray, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He poured out his soul. He didn't hold anything back, and he bore the sin of many, and many and made intercessions for the transgressors. Now, this is where we understand and where we have a lot of peace. That he makes intercession for the transgressors. You see, when Jesus is at the cross, what he's doing is making intercession for us. He's making intercession for you and he's making intercession for me. Transgressors. He's pleading our case before the Father. And as he's pleading the case before the Father, he's saying they are justified now. Many are made righteous now because he went and he poured out his soul on the cross, many. And today I want you to understand maybe you have walked away from the cross. We observe the cross from afar, we look at the cross from afar, but we haven't carried the cross. We haven't come to the cross to say, Lord, I want to receive you as my servant, Messiah. Thank you because you took my pain. You took my sorrow. You bore my sin, Lord. And this Good Friday tonight, I want to give you that opportunity. Wherever you are, to be able to say, Lord, thank you. Thank you because all and everyone, that includes me, that includes you, have gone astray. But he took the pain, he took the sorrow, he took the hurt, he took all of that. And as he took all of that, he went to the cross and he paid the price as a substitute for the judgment and the wrath for your sins. So that now me and you can be righteous and can be right with God. There is nothing better on this Good Friday that we become right with God before we take communion. And that's who I want to pray with you. Would you just pray this simple prayer? Lord Heavenly Father,
We thank you, Lord, because you came in a very lowly state. And Lord, that you were crushed, you were bruised, that you were broken for my sins. But I ask now, Lord, that you take this pain, that you take this sin, and you replace it with your love and your grace and your mercy, Lord. We thank you for the cross, Jesus. We choose to go to it and to surrender to it, not to reject it, Lord. We pray this all, Lord, in your name, in Jesus' name. We receive you by faith as our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.